right, well, we are in a series on a Sunday evenings. Um, I've entitled the series, Humanity, Creation to Restoration. That's just kind of a fancy title. If, if you wanted to really get your mind around this and say, what are we doing, what are we studying? You could put a word on it, anthropology, right? We would say biblical anthropology. Uh, what does the Bible say about us? What does the Bible say about who we are, why we're here, what's wrong with us, uh, how God's fixing us, what's the ultimate end of this? And so this is a study that uh, we began a few weeks ago. This is actually only our third lesson in it because we've had some interruptions along the way. That will be the case with the Christmas season as well, but I anticipate this will spill certainly into the next year, uh, into January, maybe February as well. But we began just by way of review, kind of asking this question, uh, who are you? How would you define yourself, right? What, what makes you, you? And I don't mean you as, as different from the person seated next to you. I mean you as a human being. Scientists uh, define humanity. In fact, there's a scientific term for humans. This is based on Carl Linnaeus's Latin two-name system when he tried to um, organize things. He, he would give each thing a, a name, a genus, and a species. So there was a genus name and a species name. And when it came to humans, Linnaeus said, we are homo, uh, in Latin means man, mankind. Homo, you know what it is? Sapien. You know what sapien is? Sapien means wise. So Linnaeus said, here's what we are. We are the wise humans, wise people, wise beings, okay, homo sapiens. Well, if, if you look up what is a homo sapien in Britannica, here's what you get. I know it's really small, but I'll read it for you. Humans are culture-bearing primates classified in the genus Homo, especially the species Homo sapiens, they are anatomically similar and related to the great apes, orangutans, chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas, but are distinguished by a more highly developed brain that allows for the capacity for articulate speech and abstract reasoning. That's right out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Well, if you ask a, a secularist, someone with a secular worldview, this is what you'll get. Now, obviously, being published in Britannica, uh, it is a, a very prominent idea of what you are. You are basically an elevated ape because you can talk and you can communicate. This premise actually permeates public education in our culture in America. This is what, uh, if you attend public education, they will, this is their premise, this is what you'll be taught, this is the basis of it, and everything that they teach about human beings stems from this. And yet what I find fascinating is although this is the dominant view among the next generation in public education, between 75 and 80% of Americans believe that actually human beings were created by God or that at least God had some part in the creation of humanity, whether it was his starting it off and, and it kind of ended on its own. But, but 
with, with a preponderance of this kind of communication toward people in academic settings, they still can't push out this notion that the vast majority of people in our country say, ah, that's not correct. There's actually more to us than that. And so tonight, what I want to look at, and we're going to review just a little bit, who are you according to a biblical worldview? What does the Bible say you are? Who does the Bible say you are? We looked at this last time, so this is review. I'll go quickly. First thing we need to note is the Bible says that you are a direct creation of God. It wasn't that God used any intermediary process to get you to you. You are a direct creation of God. It says that God formed us out of the dust of the earth, the material part of us. He breathed into us the breath of life. That's the living and spiritual part of us. That has certain implications. As a direct creation of God, you are not self-existent. You're dependent. You, you didn't originate from, from nothing. You didn't originate from just matter getting together. There was a personality behind your origination. God is a person, and therefore he directly created you, and you are not self-existent. You were dependent upon him. We all are dependent upon him for creation. As a direct creation of God, we also are not self-sustaining. We saw that this morning, right? That, that Jesus holds everything together, even us. And, you know, other things had to happen today in order for you to have your life sustained. Right? The sun had to maintain its distance from the earth today in order for you to live. You had nothing to do with that. You're, you're a dependent being. You, you cannot just sustain this environment by your sheer will and self. This is because we're made by God. We're dependent upon him. And as a direct creation of God, the third implication of this is we are not all-knowing. That is... We need revelation to live in God's world. We need God to tell us who we are, who he is, what this world is, what's wrong with it, where it's going. We can't figure that out on our own. Reason as we might try, what we need is revelation. We need God to make this known to us. And if God needs to make this known to us, what is the first thing that God tells us about ourselves? You think in your Bible, what's the very first thing God tells you about you? The very first thing God tells us about ourselves is that we're created in his image. That's why we're turned to the book of Genesis. I think I said chapter 3, but in Genesis chapter 1... God tells us this in verses 26 and 27 explicitly. God says, let us make man in our image, verse 26. And then verse 27, you have this kind of poem. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. We are made in the image of God. God wants us to know this. What does that mean? Here's what that means. Being made in God's image means you're a spiritual being. You're not just material, you have this immaterial, spiritual part of you. And again, what I really find amazing is that as hard as the secularists try to promote this idea that we're all just material, there is no spiritual, it's, it's something they cannot throw enough blankets on. It keeps coming out. 
For instance, just this week, I heard of a survey that was done among Generation Z. You know what Generation Z is? Raise your hand if you're in Gen Z. Do you know? All right, yeah. Of course, all the Gen Zers know that. Gen Zers are those born from the year 1997 to 2012, roughly ages 11 to 26, right, in our time frame. That's Generation Z. And they had this uh, survey of them in which they asked them this question. Man, that's really small. Um, here's the question they asked at the top. In which of the following have you experienced a sacred moment on more than one occasion? So they get all these young adults together and they say, tell us when you've had a sacred moment. What does that mean? That's something not material. They're kind of going for something else, right? This is a religious survey, but they're surveying all kinds of people and they're assuming that they're going to know a sacred moment when they've had one. Well, here's the interesting thing. They, they gave surveys, and, and, and respondents could respond more than once to, to any of these options that they had or, or, or discuss these things. And here's what happened. 69%, that's the top line there, 69% said when they were in nature outdoors, they experienced a sacred moment. In other words, there was something in creation as we know it that solicited a response in themselves that was not physical. It was something beyond that. 68% said that they had a sacred moment in the privacy of their own home. In other words, when everything else was shut out and they were by themselves and alone, and instead of looking outward at creation, but really had to look inward, as it were, by themselves, they experienced a kind of sacred moment. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying sacred moment means Christianity. It means conversion. All this is telling us is that you have these young adults who all their life have been told you're nothing more than molecules coming together. And they're saying, no, I'm telling you, I've experienced something that's more along the lines of spiritual. Something sacred. 55% said that they experienced a sacred moment at places of worship. That's because most of them don't go. Right? 55% said that they didn't go. And you can go on down the list where they talk about these things. My point is this. God made us spiritual beings. And try as people might to put that aside and say that's not the case. It keeps coming up in things like this. Why? It's a testimony to the image of God. God made us in his image. What else does it mean to be made in God's image? It means you're a relational being. It means that you are not made to be a hermit or live in a monastery by yourself. You are made to live in community because God is a community, right? He is one God in three persons. You too were made to live in community with other people. You were made to love others around you as yourself. That's part of being made in God's image. That's why as difficult as it might be for people to get along together, they still keep trying to band together in community. It's a natural attraction because it's part of being made in God's image. We're relational beings. 
The third thing we would note about being made in God's image is we are moral beings. That is, we have a moral awareness. You, unlike your dog, knows what it is when you see goodness. And you know what it is when you see holiness. And you know compassion. And you know these moral qualities. You're aware of them like any other animal is not. Why? You're a moral being. You were made in God's image, and that gives you a moral awareness. That was true of Adam and Eve in the garden. They had this positive moral awareness about them because they're made in God's image. In fact, it's part of that morality and moral awareness that we are to reflect the perfections of God in that way as image bearers. Right? Part of being made in God's image is to reflect God's image in that positive moral awareness or moral reflection of God's goodness. That's why God has made us. Well, that brings us tonight to really our focus this evening, and that is this. What happened? You see, you're a direct creation of God, and you are created in God's image, but you also are a fallen creature. The fall. What happened at the fall? I want us to look at it tonight. We're going to look at it under two topics this evening. The essence of the fall, what, what really happened and what was the problem. And then we're going to look at the effects. What, what, what is the result of that fall and how is that played out? Let's begin by just noting the essence of the fall of man. When you turn to Genesis chapter 1, this is what I find fascinating. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, uh, they, uh, all those chapters have to do with God's words, God, God saying things. In fact, if you just go through and underline God said, you'll find it several times in these passages. Because what you have in Genesis 1 is God uses words and he speaks the world into existence. This is the power of God's words. He says things, and out of nothing they appear. And that time and time again is a repeated refrain in Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let this be the case, and it happened. When you come to the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, God is still speaking, but now he is speaking to his chief image bearer, bearers, Adam and Eve. And he is saying things to them. He is giving them his word. For instance, look at verse 28 of Genesis 1. God blesses them, Adam and Eve, and God says to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 29, And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed in it is fruit. You shall have them for food. And God goes on and he explains these things. This is after God had already told them in verse uh, 27 that he would make them in his image. So here's what God does. When Adam and Eve came into the world by God's creation, they didn't come preloaded with information. When you get a new computer, it comes to you and it has 
Windows, what are we at? 11? Already on it, unless you're a Mac user, right? It's preloaded, and you turn it on, and all of it starts, you know, doing its thing and takes you through those million prompts and, and gets you to where you need to be. Adam and Eve did not come preloaded with all this information. God had to speak to them and say, here's who you are. You're made in my image. Here's what you must do. I'm going to give you dominion over what I've made. And what I want you to do, I want you to be fruitful and multiply in the earth. And I've given you all these trees to eat that you can eat and partake of. And when you get into chapter 2, God says this. Look at verse 16, chapter 2, 16. The Lord God commanded the man. Now God is saying things, but now he's giving commands, and it's his right to do so. It's not that God is arguing, here's why I can tell you this. God is just saying, here's what you must do. And he tells them, you can eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And in verse 18, the Lord God says again, it's not good that man should be alone, and so he makes Eve. And so what you have in this end of chapter 1 and chapter 2 is God speaking to his chief creation, and he's giving him the download. Here's what you need, Adam and Eve, in this world in which you live. Now, when you turn the page, at least in my Bible, you turn the page and you come to chapter 3, what you have now is that God's word is challenged. You see, his powerful word creates in chapter 1. His word is given in revelatory instruction at the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And now you come to chapter 3 and God's words will be challenged. And they're challenged by whom? by the serpent that we know to be Satan. And look at verse 1, the middle of verse 1. He said to the woman. Now you have another speaker. And this one is talking. And he speaks lies. God gives humanity language. He tells them to subdue the earth. Satan perverts the language that God has given and tries to bring perversion and confusion. And let's just note the progress of this. How does he do this? Well, the first thing he does is that he challenges the reliability of God's word by exaggerating God's restriction. Okay, look at verse 1. Chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What's interesting here is that some believe, and I think it makes some sense, that that, that first speech about Satan shouldn't end with a question mark, but rather with an exclamation point. In other words, he's, he's not asking a question. He's actually raising shock and surprise. He's coming to Eve and he's saying, can you believe that God would do this? Don't eat any tree. And what he's doing right out of the gate is he's putting God at odds with the image bearer. And he's, he's creating suspicion about God's motives. 
Look at what he says. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Is that what God had said? Did God say that? Remember what we read back in chapter 2, verse 16, verse 17. Um, I'm sorry, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of what trees? Every tree. There's only one restriction. The first thing that Satan does is he exaggerates the limitation in order to create this kind of suspicion. Would God really say you can't eat any of these trees? Well, apart from being an outright lie, you see how he's slipping in this question of God's motive. God is so harsh. He's so restrictive. I mean, he's unbearable. It's an attempt to create in the woman's mind the impression that God is spiteful and mean and obsessively jealous. Well, the response of Eve reveals that she kind of fell for the bait. Look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So she corrects him. No, we, we may eat of all these fruit of the trees in the garden. Verse 3, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And then she says, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God said? That's a part truth. Yeah, don't eat of the tree. But now she adds, and, and I think it's significant, right? Remember, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste ink. This is an addition. And she adds, don't touch it lest you die. And God had never said that. He said, don't eat it. Now, it would have been wise for them not to touch it and get that close to it. But she, in a sense, is exaggerating the prohibition. She's falling for the bait, as it were. And here's what I find really fascinating. In this conversation about this tree in the middle of the garden that now apparently to her should not even be touched, there's something that she's missing because there was something else in the middle of that garden. Do you remember? Look back at chapter 2. Look at verse 9. We're told, and out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was where? In the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By the way, by that, we don't know that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in the middle of the garden. It could be. But we do know the tree of life was in the middle of the garden. That, that blessed tree... Yet there's no mention of that by Eve. All she's thinking of is this restriction. Here Eve is moving slightly toward the serpent's attitude about God. That the Lord's generosity and abundant provision is kind of overlooked by this massive restriction. And God is so mean to have restricted you in this way. And this is the first step to falling. Isn't that the way it works in our lives? 
we think about something, we are tempted in some way, and we know it is wrong, but we tend to think, but God is so mean to withhold this. Could he possibly have my best interest at heart? I think he's just being a bully. Beloved, Satan's tactics have not changed. His temptation is to raise doubt about the integrity of God. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Okay, finally we get to this. It's outright contradiction. God said you would. He says, you're not going to die. But he's led her on this process to this point. And now he does so by questioning God's character. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be what? You'll be what? Okay, let me ask you, were they like God? What had God told them? You're made in my image after my likeness. And the serpent said, Actually, you're not, and God is holding back from you. There's much more, and he's withholding it. This lie is held out to Eve, and it is the lure of this. It's the lure of what we would call a moral autonomy. Because look at what he says. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And what he's saying is, God is holding back from you. You are dependent upon God to know right from wrong. He's told you, don't touch the tree, that's wrong. But you're trusting his revelation and you're listening to him. And what Satan is saying is, what you need to do is partake of this fruit because then you'll be the one to determine what is right and wrong. You will be morally autonomous and you get to decide what is right and wrong. Do you see that? She would be equal with God in this way. How intoxicating. I get to make the rules. I get to decide what is right and wrong. I don't have to listen to a guilty conscience or a God that would condemn me. I can be God and decide what I want to do. This is Satan's attempt to tell them he is withholding this God likeness. Here's the interesting thing. Did they become like God? Look at chapter 3, look at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has what? Become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Well, maybe Satan was right. What does he mean by this? Well, what God is saying is they have reached this kind of moral autonomy. They have chosen to rebel, and instead of relying on my word to them, they have chosen to take this into their own hands and be morally autonomous. And they know good 
from evil. Before that, they had only experienced the good. Adam was created in what we would call positive righteousness. There was potential for fall, but he was positively righteous. He knew the good. He was an image bearer of God. But when he chose to rebel, and we rebelled in him with Adam, in the fall, what happened was now we began to understand the evil and the wrong, and there's actually a penchant within us for the evil and the wrong. Our moral compass is off. And here's the thing. Look at what God says in verse 22. The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And God says, now lest he reach out his hand and take the tree of life and eat and live forever. Then we read that God expels him out of the garden. What does God do? God pronounces a curse upon him and says, because you've partaken of the fruit, you will die in this condition. And that is a gracious thing of God because only the eternal God can hold these matters of good and evil and determine what is truly good and what is truly evil and what the consequence of those things ought to be. That's the eternal God's prerogative. When mankind took of the fruit, he said, I want that prerogative. And God says to him, you will be cursed in that. You were never intended to handle that. But because I am gracious, you won't live long. Because you can't handle that. And the curse of death, in some ways, is gracious at this point. In God's mercy, he withholds immortality. And death is a judgment, but it is also a release of this burden. So what is the essence of the fall? The essence of the fall is this. Mankind, human beings, men and women, fell by believing the lie that we are better off living independent of God. I am better off casting off his rule. I am better off living as an autonomous agent, making up my own way. This is true for all of us, friends. Behind every sin is belief in a lie. We sin, it's because we believe we know better than God. This can't be that bad. It's not really going to hurt anybody. It doesn't have any really bad consequence. And our falls, even today, have everything to do with whose words we believe. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in time of counsel with somebody and and there's been an issue and the issue has come up and I've tried to direct attention to the Bible and I've said but here's what God says about that read it for me and they read it and the person across the table says yes I know that I understand that but it can't be that way it doesn't make any sense I mean you really expect me to do that It's at that moment that the fallenness of our nature is rearing its ugly head just like it did in the beginning and saying, I think I know better. 
think I'd like to do otherwise. I think I'll give this a try. Do you see that? We believe lies. We disdain God's revealed will for us. And it's part of our fallenness. Jesus put it this way. He says, at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, you know the story. He says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. This is the person that like builds his house on what? On a rock. And the winds come and the floods come. And guess what? That house stands. Why? It's built on my word like a rock. But there are those who casually approach God's words, casually approach his ways, think they know better. And Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine and doesn't do them, he's like the guy that builds his house on the sand. And the rains come and the floods rise and that house crashes and falls and great is the fall of it. And how many times, beloved, can you think even in your life when you disdained God's word, you didn't do what God said, and you suffered consequence. And you note, how did this thing get so messy? Because we believe lies. And we fail to think that God really knows what he's talking about. This is the essence of our fall. believe that we are better off going our own way and living independent of God. What are the effects of this? The effect of the fall of man. Two words for you. I'll describe them and we'll be done. The first is this. One effect is inversion. You know what inversion is? It's a reversal of order. We were made to image God. Adam did so perfectly before he fell, but after the fall... The image of God in us is not perfect. It's, as someone has said, defaced. But it's not erased. There is still image of God in people. It's not entirely erased. But it's not perfect. Who here would say you perfectly image God? And what we find here in the very first fall is this. The way that there is this inversion or reversal of this order. Here's the order that God intended. God intended that there would be relationship between God and man. We are made of spiritual beings, relationship between other people. We are relational beings and even creation and relationship. And and we are moral beings that we would have positive moral capacity. All of those things have been affected and they have been tainted by this fall. And here's how that works. When we read in Genesis 3, look at verse 8. Here's what happens right after the sin of Adam and Eve. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Why did they hide themselves? Before this time, 
the Lord walked with Adam in the cool of the garden in the day, and Adam rejoiced in that, and he walked closely with that. But now after the fall, this idea that I am a spiritual being made in God's image, that's affected. And this vertical aspect of being made in God's image still remains. I have this spiritual sense, but now my sense is one of condemnation instead of blessing. Human beings live under this sense of, I am condemned or guilty, and how do I get rid of this guilt? Do you realize that that is the history of our race for millennia? Why do you think when you read the history of humanity, nearly every culture has its priests and its offerings, and it's some way to appease a deity or a kind of conscience? Because we're made in God's image and we're spiritual beings. And when we fail, that was not erased. But the sense now is, I am under condemnation. I do, I do need to hide myself from God. The other thing that was affected was not only this, these relationships are broken between God and man, the sense that we're spiritual beings, but also this relationship between people, in particular between man and woman, right? Uh, look, at, look at what happens. Verse 9, the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you, Adam? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. I was naked. I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you to eat? Verse 12, the man said... It's the woman that you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit and I ate. Here now is this horizontal aspect of being made in the image of God as relational beings. It still existed after the fall, but it's corrupted and it primarily shows itself in what? Blame shifting. It's her fault. And what's Eve going to say? It's the serpent's fault. Now this complementary partnership between husband and wife, man and woman, both image bearers of God to have dominion and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, the image is still there in relationship, but it's corrupted by a, a rivalry. It's corrupted by, by blaming the other person for my fault. Blame shifting. And so this image is not erased, but it certainly is defaced. And that could be true in marriages today and in relationships today. When you talk to people with relational turmoil and the trouble that, that they have in their relationships with a coworker or a spouse or a brother or sister or, or somebody on the planning board or whatever it may be, when you have those kind of conversations and you sit down with people the first time, you know what you always hear? It's what everybody else has done. This person said this and this person did this and this is how they acted in this and this is why they did this and this is now what they're going to do about this. And most of the time, you have to work very, very hard and say, those people aren't in the room. Let's talk about you. 
Let's start with you. But nearly every time it goes this way, why? It goes back to the fall. This is the evidence. We're fallen creatures. We all deal with it. The relational aspect of being made in God's image is there, but now it's turned into a rivalry. The relation between mankind and creation is still there. We are still to have dominion over the earth, but now it's corrupted many times into exploitation. And instead of dominion, we are often domineering and exploiting even the resources of the earth. Mankind has been known for that. Or sometimes it's exploited in worship of the creation rather than the creator. can see the image of God. It, it still exists. And to top it all off, morality is confused. Remember, we're moral beings made in God's image. And now since the fall, there's a confusion about morality. And this is the sense to try to push down the guilt that I feel. How is it today that people are trying so hard to get people like you to be quiet about the sins of our culture, the sexual sins of our culture. And they're trying to extinguish your voice. Why? Because inside of them, they know there's this moral confusion. And they're thinking, if I can just silence the voice, the voice inside will be quiet. But it never will. So there's this constant moral confusion. Let's call that which is evil good and that which is good evil. And let's just make our own new rules. We are morally autonomous beings. And God has a way of just bringing that back into focus and saying, try as you might, you'll never get beyond it. Our plight is not that in the fall the image of God has been abolished or erased, it's far worse. Namely, it's that the structures of the image of God remain. We're still spiritual beings and relational beings and moral beings, but all of those structures are affected deeply. And they come up in our everyday lives. And that results in this, this final word, frustration. Frustration. After sin, the world was cursed, and God enacted this curse. He mentions the curse on the serpent in verse 14, and to the woman in verse 16, and to Adam himself in verse 17. And God says, this is the result of your sin. This is what will happen and what will take place. And what result would be physical death. That day, Adam and Eve began to die began to decay. That day, the second law of thermodynamics went into action. Things began to run downhill. Entropy, as it's often called. This is what Romans 8 says. Romans 8 says, the whole creation groans and travails in sorrow until now. It's waiting for, for the redemption of it. 
and there's physical death that results, and death and decay are all around us. Just think about how much time you spent this week trying to reverse the effect of the fall in regard to spiritual or physical decay, right? You, you have to fix things around your house, and you have to fix your car, and, and you got to mend your clothes. And Why? Because it's, it's all deteriorating and falling apart. And how much of your energy and time is spent just pushing that rock uphill that will inevitably roll back. It's frustrating, is it not? Not only that, there is spiritual death. Ephesians chapter 4 says that we are alienated from the life of God. In other words, the image of God is in us and we're still spiritual beings, but because that is there, the spiritual awareness, we look for satisfaction of that in other things. Romans tells us people look for satisfaction of the spiritual hunger in the creation rather than the creator. They look for fulfillment in the creation. When you think of a world that, that is filled with this notion of I've got to have satisfaction in my soul and what they're trying to do is pour as many material things possible in there. More things and more money and more, more this and more glamour and glitz. And, and it's trying to pour all of this in there because there's this spiritual sense that has to be satisfied. And I'm looking for all of these things. And as soon as you get those things, you feel just as empty. And there's loss. And you're frustrated over it. It's like the middle-aged man that I know something about. A middle-aged man that all his life thinks, I'm going to work for this, you know, 4,000 square foot house on 20 acres in the country and, and finally gets there and accomplishes all of that and he's sitting in his house one day and looking around at all of this and he says, is this all there is? I mean, 40 years from now, no one's going to know I ever sat here. And it's going to be all gone, and, and it keeps deteriorating as it is. And there's frustration. Because God never intended for you to be satisfied with this creation. But because of the fall, we tend to do that. Let me put it to you this way. Recognize that? Maybe you saw that less than a month ago. Turkey dinner. Well, if you leave that turkey out for a day, it gets cold, right? What happens if you leave it out for three days? It stinks. What happens if you leave it out for three weeks? It's a health hazard in your home. There's a foreshadowing of your future. How do you feel about that? I mean, that will be our future, right? When we die? But the fact is, beloved, everything is dying and decaying around us. All of it is. It's all under the curse. And it often leaves us hopeless. 
it leaves us hopeless because oftentimes we hang too much importance on this material world that is decaying. And we try to suck so much satisfaction out of it that we can't. And it's like sand that passes through our fingers. And we get frustrated. We get frustrated because we assume this life as it is can satisfy, but it can't. And no matter how hard we try, it keeps flowing through our fingers. It's broken. And in this broken world, you need to trust God's plan. What is God's plan? God's plan is never for you to gain satisfaction out of this broken world. God's plan is for you to find your satisfaction in him and then image him in a broken world. By his help to restore this image and likeness of him so that you can show people living in a broken world there's a world to come. Here's a taste of it. Here's a taste of new creation. And this is what satisfies. You know, the Bible describes life like a wilderness. I mean, the Bible, a wilderness isn't like the White Mountains. Uh, the wilderness is a desert, a desolate place. It says that, that we on this earth, it's like we're living in a, in a wilderness. And that wilderness can't sustain you. You, you can't be sustained by, by what you're going to find in that wilderness. Not only that, that wilderness can't satisfy you. You're always longing and thirsting and looking. It was never meant to. And this broken world, cursed by God, was never meant to satisfy you. It's broken. But in that wilderness, God told his people, when he talked about a wilderness to them, he says, I have put a rock in the wilderness. Do you know who the rock is? In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, this rock is and a rock in a wilderness like that, it was a safe place. It was a satisfying place. It was a place of safety and shelter and shade. And oftentimes in that rock, it would hold water for a long time. And you could find refreshment there. God says you're fallen and this world is cursed and you're living in a wilderness. But there's a rock in your wilderness and it is Jesus Christ. And he will satisfy you. He will sustain you. And so run to the rock and stay close to the rock and find satisfaction in the rock. Jesus said it this way, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that's where you find satisfaction. That's where you find new life.